Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hello and welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, this episode is a fun one. I have Senator Al Franken on the show. Uh, Senator Al Franken, w- which is still a sort of funny thing to say if you grew up watching Resided on Saturday Night Live, uh, he's a senator from Minnesota and is the author of a new book, Giant of the Senate, which unlike virtually all books ever written by politicians, is actually fun to read. I actually recommend it. But it's a really fascinating book in a way that I wasn't expecting when I opened up. In, in addition to the jokes, and the jokes are at least some of them are good. <laughs> It is a story of Franken learning to be a politician. And and what's unique about it as a story is that almost all political books are about how the politician at the center of them is authentic and unique and didn't need politics and isn't being made into a politician and is resisting Washington. And, And this book is really the opposite narrative. This is a book about Franken learning that he can't litigate his old comedy learning that he has to listen to his staff, he's listened to his communications director, learning that there's a reason politicians do what they do in interviews. It, it, it's a book about Franken's journey to appreciating at least some of the skills and the structures and the norms of American politics and, and, and the politicians who are running around within it. And, and for that reason, it's very interesting. And it's particularly interesting as a contrast with our current president, who also, to some degree or another, comes out of show business, but has taken the opposite tack. He does not believe he needs to learn from anyone. He is not looking around and picking up skills. He has not come to have a greater appreciation for the profession that he has chosen to shift to late in his life. So this is a, a, an interesting interview, not just because Franken is an interesting guy, but it's an interview about what it means to be a politician. What are the skills that help you as a politician? One quick plug, a big plug this week. Uh, I'm very, very excited about this one. We are launching Worldly, which is if you listen to The Weeds, my other podcast with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff, where we go deep in policy. Worldly is a lot like The Weeds, but for foreign policy. Uh, It's hosted by Yochi Driesen, our foreign editor at Vox.com, by Zach Beecham, our senior reporter, by Jennifer Williams, our deputy foreign editor. Every one of those people is an incredible genius, and I learn a tremendous amount from them every single day. Uh, And now you're going to get the opportunity to do it, too. So again, the podcast is called Worldly. It is launching on Thursday, June 22nd. I've been listening to the early pilots. They are great. This is going to be great. Uh, and you should all go and sign up. All right. All that said, here is Senator Al Franken. So I like the book a lot. Um, and, and what I liked about it was that a lot of political memoirs are about the politician bragging 
about how they trust their instincts and how they're authentic. Oh, that's right. And how yeah, what sure. you see is what you get. <laughs> and, and your political memoir is about learning not to trust your instincts and not to be authentic and not to show people yeah. the first thing you think. Did, were you were you thinking about that while while you wrote that? Was that a, a decided break from the tradition? Well, I was trying to be honest, and and I knew that it was ironic that uh, I know the people. I, I think I write about um, people saying, "Whatever you do," my friends going like, "Whatever you do, don't get a political consultant. Don't get one of those political consultants." You know, they're all whores <laughs> and they'll turn you in. They'll just give you the same thing everybody else is saying during that cycle and et cetera, et cetera. And a friend of mine who didn't believe that was Mandy Grunwald, who's a political consultant. And I just felt like I had never run for office before. And I didn't, there was stuff I knew I didn't know. And uh, that I, and I have known Mandy for years and I, I trusted her and, I fall into that category of uh, people who run for higher office for the first time, and either you're so full of yourself that you think, I know what I'm doing. Uh, the reason I've gotten to the top of my empire here is that I'm smarter than everybody else, and I don't need any help. And those people usually lose. But not always. The only exception is if you get a lot of help from the Russians. <laughs> so one of the things I thought was interesting about that, though, is that in America, politicianing is often not thought of as a job, that we're constantly hearing people say that what we really need is not experienced politicians, but people can run the government like a business or people can bring. <laughs> well, it's not a business. Well, it's not a business. Yeah. But but it is interesting, this idea that there is a is a craft here that, that, that people need to learn and that you are willing to learn it and also to portray that as a as a valuable thing. Yeah, I think you want people who are competent politicians in the sense that they don't screw up all the time <laughs> and, and offend people right and left for no reason whatsoever that they could have avoided. I mean, I think we're seeing a lot of that right now uh, in the president, that he is making mistake after mistake after mistake. Um, now, he, he won the White House. He, he won the White House, so he, he had some real probably some really good instincts. One of his good, in, in the South Carolina debate, he basically said that W had lied us in the war. And that was just so outside the realm of what Republicans could say in debates, right, in presidential debates. And Jeb was there, and it's in South Carolina, very, you know, a state with a lot of military people. But everybody knew it. If a Democrat said it, it wasn't news or anything. But Republicans, that was outside what was permissible to say. And he said it. And as soon as he said it, everybody just went, yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a Republican, and I know that. And I don't think the other guys on the platform understood that. So this, this is something that I find interesting about President Trump, which is that he's often called a liar, and he does lie. All the time. But he's also strangely honest at other times, like saying, for instance, oh, I definitely fired James Comey because of the Russia scandal. Don't believe anything that my White House said to, to, to soften sure. the political danger of that. I, I'm curious of your assessment of him as somebody who has written whole books about lying liars who lie. 
he seems to me indifferent to the truth, but not traditionally like a liar. Uh, yeah, I don't think he lies for the sake of lying. I think he said that because yeah, I think it was a point of pride that, no, I fired him. <laughs> I fired him. You know, Rosenstein didn't. Uh, you know, Sessions said it was me, and I was going to fire him anyway, and it was because of Russia. I think it was a really stupid thing to say. I think that Mueller probably used those words to, uh, as part of his justification to uh, have an obstruction of justice um, <laughs> uh, investigation. I mean, that's, let's see, you fire the guy who's doing the investigation on Russia <laughs> and, and on Russia's interference in the election and whether you collaborated or cooperated with that that sounds like obstruction to me. I mean, doesn't it? Kind of. <laughs> there's, a, there's a weird dimension I find to this whole investigation where there seems to be a tremendous amount of effort going into finding out if Donald Trump has said privately the same things he has said publicly. So publicly, Donald Trump said, Russia, please hack Hillary Clinton's emails. I would love it if you hacked Hillary Clinton's emails. But there's a lot of effort going into seeing if they possibly said that privately, too, as if Russia couldn't say watch In the television. context he said that, it could have been a joke. I agree that it could don't, have been a joke. Don't you think? I mean, I, I think it was a joke I hate a little to, bit. I, don't, I hate to cut him slack ever, but I, I kind of thought at the time that certainly you could say that was a joke. And I mean, there's many times he said things are jokes that they weren't jokes, right? That isn't one of them. <laughs> I think that's right. But then in similarly or, or with Comey. That one's plausible that it was a joke. Right? But on the non-joke side, you have Comey where there's a lot of effort going into seeing, hey, one, one thing we are hearing is happening in the investigation is people are trying to see, did Donald Trump say to other members of his justice staff, his national security staff, that he wanted to fire Comey or otherwise impede the Russia investigation? But he has also just said publicly that that's what he was doing and what he did. Yeah, so I'm not so saying you're that wondering whether that Rosenstein knew whether that was the reason. If he knew that was the reason, he told us in the skiff in the secure room that he knew before he wrote the Comey memo on the Hillary investigation that Trump was going to fire Comey. And so why did he write that thing? I don't get that. And then basically, Rosenstein just said that everything else he couldn't say because it might come under the scope of Mueller's investigation. And I'm not, I, I, it didn't track for me that uh, Rosenstein told us that bit of information that he knew beforehand, before he wrote the memo, that Trump was going to fight. Because that seems to be under the scope of the investigation, too. So I had a real problem with Rosenstein's classified briefing he had with us i had real real problems he he just basically wouldn't answer anything except he would say that sessions hadn't violated his recusal he just kept asserting that and i don't know how he could make that assertion i don't know i, I it just seems to me that that sessions said that he recused himself on the russian investigation trump said he fired Comey because of the Russian investigation, and yet he was in that chain. He was in that chain of letters. There's a lot here that doesn't that's inconsistent, 
uh, it's not that it doesn't make sense to me. I mean, it makes sense in one, one way, which is that they're all a bunch of, <laughs> you know, lying liars, but there be, so that's uh, a, that's a way to interpret this. <laughs> at the sessions hearing the other day, yeah. motivated in part by the questions you asked him a couple months back, it was very noticeable. I thought that he was not willing to simply say, no, president Trump did not come to complain to me about the Comey Russia investigation and that had no influence on whether or not he was terminated. He seemed very he could have just put the questions of how much he was separated from that issue to rest. Well he seemed very concerned about doing I actually that. thought he handled that kind of cleverly, more cleverly than Coates did. Uh, because he said, well, I could just as easily say yes, too. I mean, he basically, do you remember that, that I part? I do. And it was basically, I just, I can't discuss my conversations. But he, I mean, that's what was so, when you assert a rule that doesn't exist, yes. that that's a little suspicious. You can discuss your conversations with well, the Well, you think, for example, that if he was going to assert this rule that doesn't, that may or may not exist, let's just be charitable, You'd think that if it does exist, you'd know it. Sure. <laughs> you'd be able you'd be able to like produce it. Yes. At the actual <laughs> you know what I mean? We, if it's something that you're gonna rely on for several hours, why not have it right? Why not say this is it? Among other things, Donald Trump has not used executive privilege yet. Right? He could make a claim, but he has not no, made well, that he said, claim. I, and then he at one point well into this, he said I, I want him to be able to use that claim of executive privilege retroactively, I guess. He didn't use the retroactively because that, <laughs> that would have kind of revealed how s silly that would have been. But he, he did actually say that, well, I, I don't want to preempt his ability to use uh, executive privilege to protect what you're asking me. I'm going to pull us out of the, the Russian sessions hole yeah. because that story, I feel like, in the week between when we do this and when it comes out, who knows what will happen? <laughs> oh my goodness! It, it has such a, it has such a velocity. I thought this to was it. live. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing. They're going to say, "Wow, that must have been months ago." Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. So I want to go back to the idea of politician skills. And you had a long career as a not just a comic, but a, but a political comic. You did in the initial Indecision uh, series at Comedy Central. So you have a very good sense of what it is people hate about politicians. And then as a politician, you've really tried, and I think this is a theme of the book, to learn how to be a, a politician. So where are the places that you think the public does not understand what politicians are doing and does not give them enough slack? I think that they don't understand what we have to navigate in terms of how hard it is to work within the institution, within the Senate, and get things done, and how you just, uh, you can't just lay down, this is where I am, and 
and I ain't compromising on it. And you get nowhere on that. And it's just, it is a, uh, a process. And I try to, I try to communicate that in the book. I mean, I wrote a chapter on the reform of no child left behind and it's, you know, it's not like this bells and whistles. We got a great victory, but it is a example of where we actually over years and years, like seven years of uh, admiring the problem, actually figured out that we agreed on about 80% of it and got it done. And I actually heard from somebody uh, who I respect a lot, I won't drag his name through this, that he said his wife was very involved in that process and that I captured it exactly right. And to me, that that's an example of we got more early childhood education, which I believe in, not enough at all. We got more after school, the 21st century learning centers, not nearly enough funding for it. We got these changes in the way the flexibility that states have for testing, that's actually a really good thing because otherwise they just had to do so much testing because they had to have their own state, their own test, <laughs> the No Child Left Behind test, the national test. There were things that we did that were really good that took a, an enormous amount of just hashing out and hashing out and hashing out, but we did something, we accomplished something. And I think that a lot of people, I write about politophobes, and there are people who think that there, you know, there obviously exists an objectively good policy regarding education. And they all know what it is, but they all got vested interests. They all, and that's not the case. There's actually real public policy debates where people disagree. And everyone isn't Betsy DeVos who doesn't know anything. <laughs> you know, everybody on that, she doesn't represent everybody who, who care. I'm against choice. I'm against choice for the uh, probably a lot of the same reasons that she's for it. She wants to get money to, she wants kids to go to religious school. But there are really legitimate policy disagreements and arguments that have to be argued out. Now, that said, what they're doing now on healthcare is a crime. I want to put a pin in healthcare. We're gonna we're gonna do some healthcare. Yeah, but but I do want to stay on the point of compromise here for a second because this seems to me to be a place where, particularly right now in politics, there are very conflicted intuitions. That on the one hand, people would like to see a politics or, or feel like they would like to see a politics where the two sides get along better, where they come together for the good of the country. Then there is a simultaneous political impulse that argues that compromise is sullying that when you've given something up, you've given too much up, that there is something about it that's sort of going going Washington and selling out your yeah, principles. Yeah, and I write about that too. I mean, I think... I, well, I mean, your book is a magisterial overview, so it's you've got, you got all this stuff in there. <laughs> well, no, I, I, uh, I think I have uh, um, cracks, in, cracks in my soul. Oh, cracks in your soul, right. Yeah, yes. I mean, there's a... You Can know, you tell that story? That's a very funny story in the book. Well, there's a woman comes up to me, and I've been, I don't know, in the Senate for maybe two, three years at the time, and I'm at a reception for this awards for 
uh, theater in the Twin Cities. And we have more, I think, stage space per person population than any city in the country except for New York. So I'm at this th- at this reception, and this woman comes up to me, and she says, you've been in Washington for two years now, and I can see cracks in your soul. And that's not something you want to hear about your soul. And, you know, you've seen corruption, and you've seen there are cracks in your soul, and I want you to be whole and green. And I said... I'm getting a massage tomorrow. And she thought that was good. <laughs> I didn't say what Barney Frank said, which is uh, something effective. I've only voted for one person who believes 100% of what I believe. I've only done that once in my life. That's when I voted for myself the first time. <laughs> I like that that the first time clause. Yeah, and it does change you when when you hear. But and and I try to explain that, and I try to it, be honest with people. It is a bit of a mind, um, you know. It plays with you a little bit with your mind and your soul being in here and wondering, uh, are you compromising enough or too much or the right way, <laughs> or is this the one I you know fight on? This is the one I just. Uh, should I vote on this as if my vote were the deciding vote? I used to I used to say that. I'm going to vote as if I were the deciding vote, I'm going to vote that way. And now I, I just, what was that about? <laughs> so what like, is your, what what is your rubric what now? Is about? Uh, I don't know if I could, I can't articulate it quite as plainly as that. I mean, I, you know, usually I almost always vote. I have a pretty clear idea of why I'm going to vote for something. But sometimes you get to an omnibus spending bill where there's uh, eight things in it that just are horrible in it. And there's 12 things that are terrific in it. And uh, you could stand, you could vote no because of the eight things. You could vote yes because of the 12 things. You could vote no because one of the eight things is so horrible and then you know even if six of the 12 things are stuff you wrote <laughs> you're still gonna vote no i mean it's 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 very uh you have to make these decisions when you look at the senators who are the most effective in your point of view what are the skills they've developed what makes a senator effective i think they're people that have uh credibility uh, with colleagues, both in terms of uh, policy, uh, credibility, that means, and that's partly just having having that knowledge yourself, but also having staff that are really good. And it's also that success builds success. If you've worked with people before and been able to get something done with them, that builds uh, partnerships. And, uh, you know, to some degree, some seniority helps. Uh, being a committee chairman really helps, uh, or being a ranking member. Um, but it's, this is why I wrote the Ted Cruz chapter is that he's not gotten anything done, uh, because his word's not good. And I write a story about that that kind of demonstrates that. And he's actually, he's like an exception. Everyone else I think tries to be effective, 
And that's the satisfaction that comes with the job for me is when I get something done. Your Ted Cruz chapter is, it's very funny, but it's also, I thought, an interesting answer to a question that was very prevalent during the primary, which is the Republican establishment did not like Donald Trump, was afraid of Donald Trump. Sure. At a certain point, it's clear Ted Cruz was the best chance to stop him, mm -hmm. and they could not get anywhere near uniting behind Ted Cruz. And you provide something of an answer to this. What, what, what's that answer? The answer is he's just a toxic person. And you can't trust him. He's very smart. <laughs> but uh, there's a lot of people in the Senate who are very smart. And they're not sociopaths. And I think people would look at that from the outside and wonder, okay, are you saying that ideologically he's a sociopath? You're no. saying he's very conservative? But no, no, that's not what you're saying. No, he's I'm saying that, that he does not. There's something about him that uh, that's untrustworthy. As I say in, in the chapter, something you should know about Ted Cruz is that I probably like Ted Cruz more than most of my colleagues like Ted Cruz, and I hate Ted Cruz. And the, the reason I like him more than my other colleagues is that he actually has... A sense of humor, he does. And he's very smart. And he doesn't have a great sense of humor, but he's smart enough to compensate for that. And he has a decent sense of humor, and he values humor, sort of. But everything else about him is just... Um, and I tell, you know, this is read the book kind of thing. I mean, I don't want to tell... Because they're long stories, and part of uh, the reason they're good long stories is that they're sort of shaggy dog stories that end with a shocking ending. <laughs> and, and the shocking ending is like, oh my god! It's usually that he's really lying. the the ending. It's a and, version and that, of lying. And that's it's how what I thought was interesting. That that's what I want. That's what I was trying to zone in on here because I think people look at politics and they say there's a lot of lying. Yeah. I think they look at even the Senate and they say if you check a lot of these statistics. They are not true. But what you sort of identify in him, which I thought was interesting, is a shamelessness around the lying, a sort of willingness to just say, nope, I never said that, or well, to not correct. It, it seemed that it was something, it was like, it's almost a secondary, like once he's called out, that seems to be where your offense comes well, in. Well, that's, that's the specific of that story. But it's just one example of the very many different ways <laughs> he uh, constantly sort of offends people. You know, I had somebody who is a person around Washington who was trying to organize the chiefs of staff, Republican and Democratic chiefs of staff, to kind of talk with each other more and 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 to get in order to get some some stuff done and build trust. And one of the Republican chiefs of staff said, "Do not include Cruz's chief of staff." Because you can't trust this guy at all. And their whole reason for being is to talk to his own base about, I'm not going to be, I don't, I'm not here to make 99 new friends. <laughs> like, uh, and, you know, that Washington is inherently corrupt, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the more he can just say that, but he do, hasn't gotten anything done except close the government down, shut the government down. You, you talk a lot in the book about the dehumorizer. 
and the ways in which uh-uh. your the jokes you told throughout your career were thrown back at you, ripped of context yes. when you ran for office. And and it struck me as interesting because it, it feels to me that that broader decontextualization, both of jokes and of not jokes now, I mean, you just see something sure. somebody was saying as part of an argument, a little piece of it gets pulled out on Twitter and it ricochets around the world. Right. And it seemed to me that what you were arguing in the book was that the skill you had to learn was that you just weren't going to be able to persuade everyone. Right. You can't litigate comedy. And you also have to be careful to hand people something that can be taken wildly out of context. It's a, and you start to internalize those rules. And that's why people go like, people in Washington don't seem authentic. They all sound like they're talking from talking points. And, and there are, you know, you have to trust yourself to not be handing them something that they can hit you over the head with by decontextualizing it. But I'm curious about the the personal side of it. And maybe I'm curious because it's something that I deal with just as a writer, um, where pieces of mine will get interpreted wrongly or framed in a way I, I don't think is accurate. not and, fun, is it? No, it's not fun uh-huh. at all. You didn't um, like it, did you? It's, it's why I try to visit, a, <laughs> visit it upon politicians as often as I can. Yes. Um, and, and it seemed to me that... You got a little taste of your own medicine, didn't you? <laughs> What is the experience like, not just of recognize you can't litigate comedy, but just there are going to be people out there who are just, you're just not going to persuade them that you were trying your best, that you were being a good person. No, well, that's, 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 of course. Was that strange for you going into politics? Oh, no, no, no. I mean, I wrote enough about that. It was, I had a unique situation, which is I had 35, 40 years of comedy that was satirical. I mean, one of the, things I point to is I wrote an article in Playboy and there was a paragraph in it about, it was for the millennial issue. So it was about new technologies and how their Playboy readers are going to benefit from them <laughs> and, and, and everybody. And so I say, uh, the internet is a great learning tool. My son did a great sixth grade report last year on bestiality using the internet he downloaded a lot of great visual aids and the kids in the class just loved them because you know at that age they're just sponges okay now that's actually a conservative joke that's saying hey parents check what your kids are looking at on the internet right and that they turn that into an ad where al franken tells jokes about Bestiality, and then, and you know, from infinity through your eyeballs, bestiality comes out. And my my mother in law cried when she saw that ad, and not she didn't cry because she thought I did jokes about bestiality or that I, you know, was doing something awful. She she cried because what they're doing to my son in law, you know, and uh, it just. and at a certain point, you can't go, okay, the context of that bestiality joke was this. It wasn't, you know, you can't do that. You just can't do it. But it's interesting. <laughs> One of the things that I thought was fascinating is a matter of political strategy. But I do it in the book. I do that in the book. Yes, you do I litigate kinda, a lot of the comedy yeah, in the book. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I litigate some, and I talk about uh, disastrously trying to litigate one. There, there was a fascinating... You have a great section on the on the your initial election to the Senate and the campaign. And what struck me about the strategy of that was when your opponent, Norm Coleman, w- w- would do something at you. The response wasn't 
sort of a counter punch. It was a different punch. The strategy is you sort of are always on trying to do your own kind of offense. It's not a sort of conversation where you butt somebody's point. It's the the act of running for office is just figuring out how to make your message the dominant one and not get sort of taken off track trying to respond to their messages. Is that, well, is that well, one of the lessons? Yeah, because his only message was, you know, Al Franken is awful. <laughs> and he has this history of saying terrible things and he's going to do that as a senator. And you don't respond to that because then that's, you know, uh, it's that old thing with LBJ that some... Uh, he said, we, we can't accuse your opponent of having sex with a donkey. And and he just says, I just want to hear him deny it. So, you know, you can't, you, you, you just don't respond to that stuff. You've got a great line in the book that I, I've been thinking about since I read it, which is that being a senator does mean finding a way to make friends with people you're fighting against with every fiber of your being. But it also means finding a way to fight with every fiber of your being against people you're friends with. How do you draw those lines? How, where, where can you go such that the fight does not make those relationships impossible down the road? I think we all understand it, or most of us do. I think, I think you, you get it. And uh, this isn't to say that, you know, I, I also write in the book that this isn't going to be your... Um, Typical book uh, that's written by U.S. senators, for instance. I'm not going to write stuff like Mitch McConnell and I may disagree, but when we're off the clock, we're the best of friends. Sometimes we go to dinner, and Mitch will laugh so hard that milk shoots out of his nose. No, I'm not going to be writing cliches like that. And, you know, my best friends tend to be Democrats and tend to be people. We do spend more time with each other. We go, they have caucus lunches three times a week. Uh, so they spend a lot of time with each other. How often do the Democrats have them? Twice. And it's that third one that really seems crazy to you. Well, you're only here. I mean, <laughs> people aren't here for lunch on Monday or, or Friday. So it means like essentially they have one every day. <laughs> At least we have a day we don't do it. So on Wednesday. But they're just meeting every day, every day for lunch, plotting, I guess, or, or, or strategizing, let's say. And so, yeah, the people you're closest to tend to be people in your own party. But um, you also have to make friendships with people who, who aren't. The place I wanted to go with that is how do you... How do you forgive or how do you compartmentalize? Um, so right now we're watching, I guess it may not end up being called the American Healthcare Act, but the Senate Republicans are crafting in secret a healthcare bill. Yeah, it's terrible. There's, they attacked you guys for a very long time about a secretive process, about not enough public deliberation, about not being open about it, about not being transparent. It's almost as if they're being hypocritical. But it, But it's beyond that, right? I mean, it is something I've actually never quite seen a process like this one so if they do this if they sort of do this bill in the dark of night jam it through take health care from 20 million people what happens next for you is it hard to believe things they say is it hard to sort of say you know take it at face value i mean how do you oh it's still it's very hard yeah i mean there's there's lying one person to another and that's what i was kind of talking about with crews and stuff and then there is just the whole basic saying stuff on the floor that just isn't true. <laughs> and that's sort of like, okay, 
Um, that's pretty standard operating procedure. I think with them, I don't think we do that. Um, but on healthcare, they said that, that, and, and this sort of complaining about the process we had, we had, I don't know how many hearings, but must've done. No, I had to cover them. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we we did all these hearings on healthcare and there are all kinds of Republican amendments in it. Now they chose not to vote for it. So they'll say, well, you did it just with democratic votes. And I suppose there's a point there, but we, uh, the ACA accomplished a lot for people. And what it did basically was, um, 20 million more people got health insurance. Uh, people with pre-existing conditions were protected. We have a couple of areas in the ACA that are not working. Uh, and part of it is uh, the exchanges, and part of it is that they've sabotaged that. And they did it by getting rid of the risk corridors, that Rubio did that uh, on one of these end-of-the-year packages. And uh, they are sabotaging it now by not doing the cost sharing or by holding that uh, hostage. And uh, then the other part is pharmaceuticals. We've, we had a hearing actually on pharmaceuticals and that was a bipartisan effort to get that done. But th- this is stinks, this stinks. And what they're doing is gonna hurt a lot of people. Now, I don't know what they're gonna come up with. There's no way for me to know what, what they're, what they're doing right now, but the House bill is mean, to quote somebody who is very wise about healthcare. In fact, I think he was the first person to understand that healthcare was complicated. So when you uh, go through this process, I, the thing that, thing that, something that I have found difficult in covering it is to figure out how Senate Republicans, and I've been asking them this question, feel like the hero of their own story here. <laughs> they, they know what this process looks like. They know yeah. what they said. This is a bigger, I know there's a lot of lying in politics. This has felt like something I haven't seen before. It has been it, like the, the process and what is, well, I what mean, it's, it's felt really, has felt really, I'm not shocked by much. I'm pretty jaded. I've been covering this stuff for 15 years, but I've been taken aback by this. This isn't complete lying. This is shamelessness. I mean, there's a little bit of difference. I mean, to accuse somebody of like ramming through uh, <clears throat> healthcare, the Affordable Care Act, that was kind of very misleading and stuff. And then to do an exaggerated version of what you accuse the other side of doing is shameless. It's not lying. It's just complete and utter shamelessness one of the things that seems to have been true in the senate in the last maybe has always been true but certainly in the last 10 years has been that anything people say on process is worthless so both sides have said things about the filibuster when they were trying to defend it that were incredibly honoring of the practice and then when they were trying to get rid of it sort of completely flip-flopped you've seen um this health care act being moved through in a, in a shameless way as you put it it feels to me watching it that the norms and rules of the place are beginning to break down. We're seeing a fair number of rules changes. Democrats change the filibuster rules and Republicans change them again. Do you think that the institution itself is in danger of fracturing, at least in the way its processes are constructed? Well, I think that 
look, I was there when we voted. We used a nuclear option on uh, on on judges, on circuit court judges, and district court judges, and on executive nominations because they were blocking all these uh, people that we needed for the for government to run, and they were blocking the, the first circuit or the D.C. circuit. Uh, court judges, and but we begged them. We met in the old Senate chamber without microphones, close to everybody, and we said, "What we, you know, please do a gang of fourteen. We're just begging you to do this, so we don't have to do the nuclear option." That's what we were saying. They were holding up the guy in Treasury who was supposed to make sure that terrorists didn't get funneled money, right? They were holding that that up. I mean, and they would not do that. They wouldn't do it. They would not um, do what had been done two thousand five on the other, when the, uh, when the nuclear option uh, had been threatened, and there was a gang of fourteen that stopped that from happening. Seven on each side. They said, "Okay, our vote. We pledge." that we will vote with, with each other and we can stop this uh, misuse of this from happening. And uh, they wouldn't do it. Should there be a filibuster at all? I think there should be. I think there should be. And I think it should be there because you want to get some, some consensus. I think there are things that are better if they're built with, with some consensus. I have wondered about whether the filibuster creates consensus for this reason. And this is particularly during the Obama era, it looked like this to me. But so the theory there is that by having to achieve a 60 vote threshold, which usually neither party has, you've got to win over members of the other side. And so you, you got to get consensus. But but the other piece of that is that the other side realizes they can actually block the thing entirely. And it might be that their first best outcome is to block it entirely. But if they can't block it entirely, then it's better to actually be on the bill and shape it a little bit. And by giving the minority so often the ability to kill things outright, it reduces a minority's incentive to actually play ball at all. Yeah, but on the other hand, if, if the side that can pass it with 51 votes has 51 votes, what's their, what's their, uh, What's their motivation for accepting any compromise? Well, it seemed to me traditionally members of the Senate want um, bipartisanship. Presidents want bipartisanship for some of the reasons we talked about earlier, that when these bills look very partisan, when they seem, I think, as Mitch McConnell put it, that there's a great debate happening, people decide, well, you know what? If this was a good bill, you'd have people from both sides supporting it. Uh, that, That felt to me to be the actual insight McConnell leveraged for quite a while, that just the act of making something partisan made the public think it's bad. Um, and the minority controls the ability to make it partisan. I mean, so too does the majority to some degree. Mm-hmm. Well, um, okay, Mitch was right. Now, I, I mean, we saw on Gorsuch, they, had the, they, they just did it, and they had the majority. So now we get Supreme Court justices just with the majority. And so if the president's party is the majority in the senate he can he can nominate anybody he wants and you've seen his ability to nominate really really extreme people 
So I, 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 I think there is a role for the filibuster. I mean, there's a, there's a downside to it. And, um, we could go round and round on this. Do you wish he still had it on nominations on executive branch nominations? Uh, it feels to me that things like Betsy DeVos and possibly even Sessions would not have passed in a filibuster world. Uh, you probably, they probably wouldn't have. And, uh, I mean, DeVos was the first time in history the vice president had to come down. And I was completely opposed to her. Um, I felt that she didn't have the interests of, of our children at heart. I felt she had the interests of the kingdom of God in mind. So inside the Democratic Party right now, in a world where Donald Trump is president, where these things are moving through, what is the ferment like? What, in your experience, sort of talking to Senate Democrats, is a sense of where the Democratic agenda has to go to be responsive to this moment? I think at this moment, we're, we're focused on one thing, and that's healthcare. Um, you know, I'm co-chairman of the Rural Health Caucus, and I go around Minnesota. And uh, during this period, people in rural Minnesota, many of whom voted for Trump, hate this thing, hate what passed out of the House. And, um, you know, I've had roundtables where people are crying because a woman said that, you know, her mom will lose her home health care, which she gets through Medicaid, and she and her husband both work, and they don't know what they're going to do with their mom because neither of them can take care of her. And so this is our big focus right now. Uh, obviously, I'm on judiciary, so I've been involved in this Russia and uh, those hearings in judiciary. You know, climate is an existential issue for us. So th there's lots of stuff we're focused on. We lost the damn election, you know, and so we're not in the majority. And on health care, what we can, I mean, we had a bipartisan lunch today because Johnny Isaacson, who's a great guy from Georgia, um, had this, uh, this great guy, Sam Huff, who, is a world-class barbecuer. He does this every year. So we had, actually, I saw, we had some real conversations. Dick Durbin and Lamar Alexander and I were talking about healthcare. And uh, we don't have enough of those discussions. And we were having a very broad discussion about it. And I just, I'm very concerned that they will get 50 votes for something and jam it through. I'm actually curious why those kinds of gang of 14 style coalitions don't seem to emerge more often and, and, and have more power. There's nothing stopping a group of relatively moderate senators of banding together 10 or 12 of them and really exerting a hammerlock on what can move through right now and, and, and pushing a lot on the process. But that seems to be rarer than it used to be. And folks seem to be the, the level of party discipline seems really profound. Yeah, it was interesting because there were a number of Democrats who wanted to try to do that on Gorsuch. And they felt that they were going to go to the nuclear option. So could they, you know, to preserve the 60-vote threshold on Supreme Court nominees, would there be enough Republicans? It'd, be quite, it'd have to be quite a few. <laughs> um, but uh, would there be enough 
to form a gang. And we would say Gorsuch gets to go through, but on the next one, you know, it has to be 60. You will not vote to get rid of the filibuster. And part of the reason it would have had to have been a lot of Republicans is that we have 25 up next time. So that this might come that num the number that you need to preserve the filibuster might be more than the three you need now. So we couldn't get it. They couldn't get it. I, I wasn't one of the people trying to do it, but I mean, they, they just couldn't get it done. So I grew up in, this is a bit of a, a time change, but I grew up in California and the first politician, national politician I ever met was Paul Wellstone and had a sort of an amazing experience meeting him. And I think it's a, a significant part of the reason I eventually went into politics. What did you learn from Paul Wellstone, who, for those who don't know, who is a quite remarkable senator from, yeah, from Minnesota, whose seat you now hold? Well, he's the reason I, I did this. Um, Paul just had a, uh, a passion about him. Uh, he was um, someone who believed in organizing. He was uh, somebody who believed in grassroots politics. I met him through my parents, my, my dad, in uh, 1990, Paul's first run for the Senate. My dad was in a, a senior citizen theater troupe that went to nursing homes. <laughs> so that's pretty grassroots. And Paul had this remarkable passion and energy and um, just commitment to people who were middle class and aspire and people who were aspiring to be in the middle class and people who were disabled and people who had mental illness and um his you know he said the politics uh, belongs to those who work hard and you know and and who who care and i think he's right i think it should, that that's the way that's the way we win and he also said that you can't ignore the prosaic parts of politics, the door knocking and every piece of it. Because if you do that, you'll be consigned to uh, losing. Um, I think that's probably a good place to, to end it. I'll ask you the question we used to close the podcast, which are what are three books you've read that have influenced you that you'd recommend to the audience? Wow. Okay. Recently, I just read the uh, Sheldon's book, um, Captured. And Sheldon, Sheldon Whitehouse, White I'm sorry, uh, sounds very much like a senator. Sheldon's book. Uh, Sheldon Whitehouse is a, a Democratic senator from Rhode Island, and he's written a book called uh, Captured, which is uh, just about how large corporate America has captured the courts, have captured campaign finance, have captured regulatory agencies, it's a very efficiently, very Sheldon-y book, and uh, I'd recommend it. There's a book called How Children Succeed by Paul Tuff, which is about how adverse childhood experiences change the brain chemistry of kids and how it makes it very difficult to learn. And adverse childhood experiences are things like extreme poverty, which can be hunger, witnessing violence, being abused yourself, being sexually abused. Uh, one form of abuse is neglect, being exposed to violence in where you live. The more adverse childhood experiences you have, the less likely you are to graduate. 
And, but those things can be, that trauma can be treated. And uh, kids who actually survive that and, and, and make it have a lot of resilience. It's a really interesting book in terms of um, when you're trying to decide whether schools are succeeding or not. Um, that you have to take in more into account than just, you know, how good are the teachers? And there's a book that's kind of a companion with that, uh, which is by Robert Putnam, who wrote Bowling Alone. This is called Our Kids. Uh, he starts with a chapter about how his town, I think it was Port Huron, Ohio, what it was like in 1959 when he graduated from high school. And there was one high school, and the richest kid in town knew the poorest kids in town. The poorest kids in town were two black kids who now have postgraduate <laughs> degrees and have gone on to great success. And now in uh, Port Huron, there are two high schools, and one's the upper middle class high school, and the other is the working class and poor high school. And he kind of compares the kids and neighborhoods and opportunities of one to the other. And it's a very, 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 very different picture from what it was when he uh, graduated. And then he does the same thing in Atlanta and in Cal some, I can't remember in, in California where they were, I think somewhere in South San Francisco or something. And it, you see that this is repeated over and over and over again. And you see that these children in these, lower middle class, working class, schools are exposed to these adverse childhood experiences far more and they don't have, they don't have the opportunities these other kids have. And so those two books read together, I think are, are very eye-opening. Senator Al Franken, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Senator Franken for being here, for taking the time, to all of you for listening and also for taking the time. You are the reason we do this podcast, I'm always grateful. Uh, thank you to my producer, Bert Pinkerton, uh, to Carly Citrin for engineering help. The Ezra Klein Show will be back next week. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.